You are listening to Rav Cook on the Haggadah with Yiska Smith, a podcast series from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. For more original Torah content, visit elmad.pardes.org. Welcome to Jewish Soul Food, providing spiritual food and nourishment to the soul, where we may encounter the divine presence within and perhaps hear the soul's unique, still small voice, Hakol de Mamadaka, gently leading and guiding each of us on the sweet path of authentic living. Currently, and this is our concluding class, it's a 10-class series, we have been and will continue to explore today some of Rav Cook's illuminating insights on the Haggadah Pesach. The focus will be on moving from the space of spiritual enslavement to freedom, from a place of scarcity to one of abundance, and from a limited consciousness to an expanded one. So last week, we moved through three steps, Rachtzah, Motzi, and Matzah. Bekitzer, the quick version of the review, we learned in Rachtzah, the washing, that the washing symbolizes through the use of the word netilat yadayim rather than rechitzat yadayim. When we say the bracha, it symbolizes the material act of eating must be purified and uplifted. The word netila means to lift up. Matzah amotzi, to take out. Rav Cook compared it with the verse in, Devar, in Shemot, Six and Exodus six seven Shmot Vav Zayin Vidatam ki ani Hashem alokechem hamotzi etchem mitachat zivlot mitzrayim, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out, similar to hamotzi lechem in haaretz, who brings out the bread from the earth, and then we learned that in fact we don't take bread out from the earth, we take the wheat out from the earth. So he emphasized the, the, the dualistic, the paradox in this, whereby the, on one hand the final product, meaning in this case the bread, is indeed connected to its previous elements. It's connected to the wheat. However, it is also, it's disentangled from its past and emerges in the present a distinct entity because a loaf of bread or a piece of matzah does not look like wheat. So likewise, he drew the similarity with the word hamotzi in Exodus, when God says, I will take you out of Egypt, that while we come forth from among the nations, from basic humanity, and we always have a link to our past, the way the bread or the matzah has a link to its source, which is the wheat, Likewise, while we have that link, we emerge from this raw material of humanity as a distinct, independent, and unique nation. That's Motsi. And then Matzah. Matzah, he emphasized in 
that in this particular teaching, the difference between the revolutionizing Israel compared to the evolutionary process that nations normally undergo. And the deeper reason why we didn't have time, the pasuk uses the word lehitmamea, to tarry. The, the deeper reason we didn't have time to tarry and allow for the dough to rise, hence we eat matzah, as matzah being the bread of redemption, is that we had to move quickly because the divine plan was to create this nation that would come out of where it came from tasteless and flat, meaning without an identity yet, ready to receive seven weeks later a new identity, a new value system, a new culture. In order to do this, we needed to make what we call in English a clean break. And then later on, once we received and nurtured and developed our own identity, then we can look back and take from our past. But that's, re- that's what the matzah in this particular teaching represents to Ralph Cook, the revolutionary rather than the evolutionary way in how we became a nation. Okay, on that note, we will now continue to the next step, mara. Bitterness, bitterness. And if you recall, a couple of weeks ago, we discussed why, in fact, according to some opinions, Rav Cook surely, why we have the motzi before mara. Because of, I mean, the motzi matzah, the matzah being the bread here of redemption, the bread of faith the bread through which we tell the story of coming out of our Egypt, why do we have that before the step of Marah, when the Marah represents bitterness? And a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how, in fact, while chronologically, first we experience the bitterness, and then we experience the redemption, yet, once we experience, it's the nature of the human being, And this is incredible psychological insight, not only spiritual insight. But once we've moved through and passed whatever that struggle is, where there's bitterness, it's only when we can celebrate the coming out of that. And we look back and reflect on where we were, that's where we really experience the bitterness. The bitterness, when we're in it, We're so occupied, we're so devoted, we're so committed to survive. We may not even feel, we may be afraid to feel, we may not allow ourselves to feel the intensity of the bitterness. Because at that moment, we may not know there are choices, or we may not have choices, or if we do, they may not be revealed. So we tolerate that bitterness. It's only when we become freed from that bitterness that we can look back and really contemplate on it, really embrace it, really honor it, in fact, and really sense how difficult that really was to such a point where we have more of a reason to celebrate the very miracle of our personal redemption. Of course, I'm speaking from not only 
cerebral learning, but from my own personal journey. And I bless you that in your moments of breaking out and freeing yourself from those bitter parts of your journey, that you experience the same. Yes. Let's go a little bit further, though, with Marah. Into our text. Marah symbolizes the bitterness of life. All right. He begins right from the get-go by taking the exile of Mitzrayim and expanding it because what he does is he looks at the he looks at the galut of Mitzrayim as the archetype as the paradigm as the beginning of all exiles so it's also a symbolic exile of all exiles so therefore the maror that we endured, the bitterness that we endured in Egypt historically, also is symbolic of the maror, of the bitterness that we endure just by living in exile. And that includes not only physical exile, but spiritual exile. This bitterness, though, this bitterness, according to Rav Cook. And then he brings a piece of a reference to Tanya. This bitterness causes the refinement of the soul from the dross. In other words, bitterness, and I know this is a very difficult for many people, especially people who have experienced bitterness. This is a very difficult piece to break off and chew and really engage with. And I'm going to ask all of you to just suspend, if you would, just suspend our histories for a moment and just see if we could, in a cerebral, in an academic way, even just see if it makes a sense. And then maybe we can then spend a few minutes bridging it to either Jewish experience, world experience, personal experience. But bitterness has a place. Bitterness really does have a place. In terms of refinement, it's like that smeltery. We use that word, Ralph Cook uses the word smeltery. When we, you, one is refining metals, the dross. And for us as a nation, in our embryonic stage, really the deeper or another dimension of understanding what happened in Egypt to us, notwithstanding the pain, in no way does he mean to belittle, God forbid, or patronize or diminish the pain. However, in a larger context, it really serves a purpose. And according to this teaching, the bigger purpose is refinement, is refinement. Without, with that rather, with what happened in Egypt, and again, Egypt chronologically in our history Egypt being the paradigm or the archetype for all exiles, for personal exile. With this, the soul then returns to its purity, to its holy nature. It's as if the soul is being refined out of this smeltery. So it is worthwhile, and I'm hearing now the voice of my teacher, Rav James, This is so his language, how he has guided us through our meditations 
and how he teaches the Pius. That's in the Rebbe's teachings. Rav Cook says, so it is worthwhile to greatly esteem the bitterness brought on by servitude. I'm going to reread that. Maybe even close your eyes as you're listening to this. One sentence. It is worthwhile, la'ui, worthwhile to greatly esteem, to show kavod, for the bitterness, for the very milivut brought on by your own avdut, your own enslavement, servitude. And then, in brackets, Rabbi Sh- he brings down that Rabbi Shinir Zalman of Laadi, the Balhatanya, in, ch- in the first section of Tanya, chapter 31, he discusses there concerning the beneficial, he actually uses the word beneficial, spiritual effect of bitterness, of mirivut, bitterness, remorse, as compared with or opposed to the detrimental, debilitating effect of depression, of atzvut. Bitterness in this context, Chevra, is very alive. There's a dynamic to it. It's part of the emotional, it's part of the human spectrum of emotions. And what Rav Cook is saying here, what he's teaching us, what he's actually guiding us, He's guiding us along. Look at him as like a, as our guide along our own journeys. And we're stepping on the step of bitterness, hoping to move past that step to the next step. But he's saying that that step has meaning, enough meaning to honor it, enough meaning to greatly esteem it. And in my own thinking about this, I go back to the Peshat in in those first few verses in Exodus, when in fact, and we learned this a couple of weeks ago, when do we learn the verse that God remembered his promise? When do we learn that God was ready to redeem the Bnei Yisrael, the nation of Israel? What had to happen? What had to happen? We cried out. Remember, we cried with pain. The word was, we groaned. We groaned, and as Aviva Zarenberg says, that faint, that teaching that will remain in my mind, I hope, Ad Esrim, that the word of Akim is so primal, we didn't even have language. All we could do, like an animal whelping with pain, all we could do was just cry and groan. That's how painful it got. That's how bitter the bitterness was. It wasn't just like a cut. This was a deep wound that was exposed. Once we cried out, once we groaned, with such primal bitterness, then God knew there was something to redeem us from. 
That's the refinement element to it. I don't wish, I would not bless anyone to endure bitterness. But I will bless that if one does endure bitterness, that one is able to grow from it and be refined from it and be able to look at it as a stepping stone along the many stones of the journey to really be redeemed. Now, why we didn't cry out after 209 years, after five years, after 50 years, I don't know. I don't know why I didn't cry out after 30 years, after 35 years. I cried out when I cried out. The Bnei Yisrael cried out when they cried out. But it was only after that, and that's the basic pshat. That's just looking at the verses and looking at the literal meaning. And here Rav Cook takes that and really expands, expands that to a point where I'm really taken by his phrase to greatly, it is so worthwhile, it's so important that it is worthwhile to greatly esteem the bitterness brought on by servitude. So Yiska, please. The the distinction that's being made here. So let me just see if I am understanding the distinction between Mary Ruth and Atzibut is in the uh, is that is that the bitterness sort of motivated an action, motivated us to to do something, whereas the depression. <laughs> You know, in depression, you just sort of withdraw and accept. Yes. 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 That's why there's yes. energy. There's an aliveness. There's a real aliveness with Mubirut. It's very alive. It hurts, but it's alive. Where depression, and not to confuse, the, the, the Balatanya was not comparing it to what we call today in, in the psychiatric world, clinical depression. That's, that's something else. Just basic where, where we're so sad, we're deflated. There, there is no energy. There is no aliveness. And that's what he contrasts in Tanya. So Rav Cook wants us to appreciate that there's something very alive. There's a dynamic. There's a dynamism. Right? Dynamism, if I could use that word. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to root. Very good point. Yes, that's that's very very important. What you just said. Yeah. Did anyone else uh, have anything to comment? Could you talk again, Yiska, about the timing of the of the Jews crying out? Like you referred to a chapter in Exodus. In the very beginning of Exodus, yes. So I'm not remembering that part. Okay, so I will go to the Chumash and read from the Chumash. You may want, if you want to jot this down, we're talking about in the book of Exodus. 
Three, it's the pivotal point. It really is the pivotal point for, to, uh, for our redemption. Oh, wait. It's in chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. This is the pivotal point right here. Vayahi vayamim harabim hahem vayamat melech mitzrayim. And during those many days it happened that the king of Egypt died. Vayayanchu v'nei Yisrael min ha'avodah. And the children of Israel groaned. That's the key word, groaned. Vayayanchu v'nei Yisrael. They groaned from the avodah. Vayizaku. And they cried out. They cried out, the Ta'al Shabbatam, and their cries ascended El Ha'elokim Min Ha'avodah. Their cries ascended to God from their servitude, from their work. Vayishma Elohim et Na'akatam, Vayizkor Elohim et Buto, et Avraham, et Yitzchach, et Yaakov. And God heard their Na'akatam. That's the second key word, na'akatam. Oh gosh, the moaning, the groaning, that, 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 the vayanchu, na'akatam. And God remembered his covenant with Avraham, with Yitzchak, and with Yaakov. The original covenant that he made, ben abitarim, between the pieces with Avraham, when he said the three part promise that you will be a stranger in a strange land you will be enslaved, and you will be redeemed and come out with the Rechush Gadol, with the great acquisition of a lot of wealth. So that's what he was remembering. And of course, as we discussed several classes ago, it's not that he ever forgot. It's that he remembered now, historically, in order to do something, because we brought it on. We, in fact, now, in essence... We were telling God, redeem us. Please redeem us. There's what to redeem. So that was, that's considered to be uh, the pivotal point between staying in slavery and then being redeemed from slavery. <clears throat> Those two verses right there. <clears throat> Which, of course, you could spend the whole Seder just everyone sharing those two verses in their lives. I mean, that, that's hours and hours worth of Yitziat Mitzrayim, of a Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim. This guy, I had a question about um, the, in the second line here. It, it says, with that, the soul returns to its purity. And so, in other words, with the, the refinement of the soul, from the bitterness in terms of purity. So this concept that somehow bitterness can lead to purity, I'm just, I can't quite wrap my head around that. What, I mean, um, you know, you have to go through this sort of, this this world of atzvut first, perhaps, before you get to some place of, of, of spiritual purity. But 
It just seems like a pretty hard way to to, to get there. Oh, 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 God. You are so right. Okay, let's... (laughs) So I'll answer this in two parts. Part one, look at a physical refinery where we extract precious metals. What 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 it goes on? What what happens there? What happens in a refinery? The impurities are uh, you know, boiled off. They're they're boiled. Yes, I mean if you were the metal, you would say this hurts. <laughs> but we what do we call it? We don't. We call it a refinery because we're refining out of the basic natural resource which in this sense to us was our being in Egypt, we are refining out of that what's precious about that. So what was being refined out of Egypt was our souls. That's that's the precious quote, in quotes. That's the precious metal. That's why he calls it a smeltery, the dross, the refinery, like when you're making wine, similar to that. The one second. The the second response is why? Why does it have to be this way? I will only quote or paraphrase a discussion I had one Friday night with a group of friends, people that I've known for many years. I was on the Moshav Modein. In Israel we all call it the Hever calls it in other words the the Reb Shlomo Kalbach ever calls it the Moshav. Of course, there's, I don't know how many Moshavim in Israel, but this is the Moshav. So I was at the Moshav uh, for one Shabbat, and I got together on that Friday night with some a, a group of friends. We've known each other for years, years. And all of us are a little bit more life experienced now than when we first met <clears throat> many years ago. And we were all remarking how blessed we feel, how grateful we feel, how wonderful we feel. And then one of the one of my friends said, but oh my gosh, we went through hell to get here, each one of us. Why does it have why did God create us that in order to be where we are at this Shabbat table right now, celebrating, celebrating our, our gratitude for having such happy, blessed, really simcha-filled, meaningful lives, she went, she said, I can go around this table. Every single one of us here has really gone through tough times. Why? And we all looked at her and said, what a great question. We don't have an answer. I don't have an answer to your question. Other than, this is it. Maybe this is one of those questions when we're on the other side, post the final redemption. You know, the teku, that phrase in the Talmud, when the rabbis get to a place, they argue and argue and argue, back and forth, back and forth. They're trying to figure out what really is the reason. And they get to a place we don't know. And they use the word teku, which is a Roshi Tevot, and it has to do with we have to wait until Eliyahu Navi comes. Because he's going, he's the harbinger of the Mashiach. And at that point, all the questions that we incur in this world, in this trip, that we don't have answers for, at that point will become clear. 
I myself am going to stand on that line when, and I hope there'll be a line where I could ask that question. (laughs) So I'm with you. I have the same question. Well, for what it's worth, that's a great answer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's what Jews do. Uh, We do, we do this well, right? We answer questions with a question. (laughs) There was a hand up then. Oh, it was me. I, I, you, you took the words out of my mouth. I was just, <laughs> I I, you know, it's when we have the hardest, most bitter times. If we're, if when that's, that's after that is when things start to get better. Mm-hmm. And then they usually rise about better than ever. And I think it's because that's how we learn. We, mm-hmm. we learn by humans by falling on our face. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Teach them something, you know, and they're not going to really know it until they know it in their bodies and themselves and how they do that through experiencing it. But isn't that what the this whole story is about? That this this story that we've been studying for ten weeks is the prototype of exactly what we're we're mm-hmm. speaking about now, the tribulation of being human. Yes. Yes, thank you. Yes, yes. Very very much so. Very much so. This is our story. <laughs> this is our story. Mm, beautiful. Okay, let's move on. Because uh, we don't have next week. <laughs> we don't have next week to continue. We have next week to continue our story, our own personal story, but not to learn about uh, Rav Cook's understanding of Yitziat Mitzrayim. So the bitter herb symbolizes the servitude of Egypt. There are aspects of our personality that require refinement. We take the positive aspects of servitude and what do we do with that, Chevra? Now he moves further, deeper. He moves deeper into the whole inyan of really greatly esteeming the bitterness. We can actually take the positive aspects of the servitude and incorporate them into our everyday lives as service of practice with God. So he's challenging us here. He's really challenging us not only to esteem the bitterness brought on by your servitude, but see how you can take aspects from that experience and use it in your life now. Use it in your life now. For example, maybe we're more compassionate. Maybe we're more compassionate to others who are struggling to move through and out of their bitterness. And instead of judging them, instead of Instead of really with shiput, instead of judging, nu, come on, I moved out of mine, you move out of yours. Maybe when we reflect on our own bitterness and that, wow, I've been able to move past this. Maybe it's all so we can have maybe one element here that we can use in our current place and space is to have compassion for those who have yet to join hands with us and to celebrate their own personal freedom. That in of itself is a wonderful, magnificent way of transforming something so negative into a positive aspect. So the bitter herb also symbolizes the bitter things in life. As he said before, We are willing to lovingly swallow 
And again, I'm hearing Rav James to lovingly, he uses the word embrace. Rav Cook says to lovingly swallow. It's that bitter pill. It's the cod liver oil vitamin. (laughs) (laughs) You'll thank me for this someday. You'll thank me for this. To lovingly swallow the bitterness of life knowing, and however, this here is so important, it's to really have that bitachon, the mamash, the bitachon, that trust, and that emunah, that faith, that we have before us an exalted ethical goal. That I know right now it hurts, but I'm not going to define my life by where I am. I'm going to define my life by where I'm going. As Reb Shlomo Kalbach he oh he would always teach this about people <clears throat> that he would meet who have never kept Shabbat before. <clears throat> he said, "What do you see? What do you see when you see someone who has never kept Shabbat?" It's easy to see someone who, in their present, has never kept Shabbat. When he says kept Shabbat, he's not talking necessarily all the halachot. He means experiencing Shabbat, the davening the coming home with someone, the singing, the meal, the connection, the intimacy, the spirituality. How do we, what do we see when we see someone who has never experienced that? He said, some will choose to see the present. I choose to see their future. I see them at my Shabbat table. I see that person at my Shabbat table where they're beginning to yayay and daidais because they don't know the words. <laughs> where they're beginning to close their eyes a little and, and feel, where they're beginning to come more alive, where they're beginning to taste the spiritual experience. That's what I choose to see. So what Rav Cook is saying here is as we're very as we're in the middle of our own bitterness, lovingly swallow it. Because it's part of the it's part of life knowing that you need to swallow it, and again, we don't know why, yet, because we're on a journey, and what we have in front of us is this exalted, so poetic, his, his language is so beautiful, this exalted ethical goal. Could you imagine going into a job interview, and the interviewer says, so what are your goals for the next five years? Where do you see yourself in five years? <laughs> like the, the the older I get, the more I have no idea how to answer that question. I don't know where I'll be in five years. But I think I would love to be able to tell the interviewer, you know where I'd like to be in five years? I'd like to be in a more exalted, ethical place than I am right now, having to go through this interview. <laughs> Because this hurts. But I need to go through this with you. Because I believe it's part of the step in achieving my goal of an exalted ethical life. There's the door. Or you're hired. (laughs) But he's really suggesting to have this greater... This is moving from that place of limitedness that limited consciousness to expanded consciousness, to see your life in motion, honor your present, but look ahead of you. Look and see that that it has, there's a movement to it. You can use that. And the cod liver oil has a place. 
because it keeps you healthy. <clears throat> okay, let's move. Short of any questions, insights? Yes, sir, the only thing I would add to that is that um, this lovingly swallowing the bitterness not only is, a, is processing that bitterness in a, in a way, or massaging it in a different way, but it, it seems to me that you're actually uh, staying away from depression and, and the, that place where you, there, there can be no movement. So it's like you're actually doing two things at once. Yeah, it's beautiful. Massaging. I like the way you use the word massaging. Wow. Anyway, just a thought. No, it's more than just a thought. It's it's really you're giving me some ideas here. Yeah, thank you. Actually, I want to jot that down. Massaging to. Two actions. It's really two actions with one a- within one action. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, the korech, the sandwich. We're at this point. Now we're at the place of the next step. This is the place of the sandwich. So straight from the Haggadah, Zechan Lemikdash Kehillel. This is a remembrance of the Temple, according to Hillel. Kain Hillel Bizman Shabayit Kayam or Shabayit Kayam. This is what Hillel would do. Because he was alive when the Beit HaMikdash, the temple, actually existed. What did he do? Haya koech. So in modern Hebrew, kricha is a sandwich. Karich is a sandwich. You can go to Aroma here in Jerusalem, go to one of the Aroma places and get a, they have a whole menu of krichim, of sandwiches. Right? So karich is a sandwich. Hillel, haya koech pesach matzah umarah v'ochel b'yachad. He actually would make a sandwich out of the matzah, the maror, and he would eat it together with the korban. L'kayam mashen emar, because he believed this was the way to fulfill a pasuk in B'midbar, Tet Yudalef, chapter 9, verse 11. And what's the verse? Al matzot umarorim yochaluhu, yochaluhu that you shall eat it, meaning the it here is the Korban Pesach, together with Matzot and Marah. Okay, so that's why he makes the sandwich. Now, Rav Cook teaches, it is important that we understand that the two aspects of life, freedom and servitude, I mean, everything he's been teaching, like it was brought up before, this whole series our 10th class now, for 10 classes, we've been talking about this human story, our story of moving from servitude to freedom. Now what he says, though, is incredible, that these two aspects, symbolized by the matzah, that's the freedom, and the marah, the servitude, they are not independent of one another. You're not either completely enslaved or completely free. They interact and complement one another. They each become part of another, of one another. The highest freedom is attained only when crowned with sublime service, namely the service of the King of Glory. 
That is complete freedom. <clears throat> and again, to, to quote Reb Shlomo, he said, if you're just wandering down a road and you think you're free, but you have no idea where you're going, you're not free. When we left Egypt, we had a mission. It was to get to Har Sinai. Because at Har Sinai, after seven weeks of constant refinement and refinement and refinement, we call that Sriyata Omer, we were then able to take that past and use it in our present going into the future. It's a real integration. It's a mixture. Because then we were able to choose Becharach Chufshit, to have free will, to choose what you decide to dedicate your life to. What do you decide to consecrate your life to? What do you decide to give to your life meaning? You now choose. This co-joining finds symbolic expression in the sandwiching together of matzah and moror. You know, when we become dedicated to something, when we consecrate our lives to something, <clears throat> in fact, if one looks at it from a very abstract space, one is compromising their freedom because then they no, no longer can do, in terms of ego-based behavior, they can't always do what they're in the mood to do, what feels good necessarily. I'm looking at a room here of very, very achieved people and achieving people. I know that you know what that means. That when you're dedicated to something that gives your life meaning, there are boundaries to that. You can't always just say, well, today I feel like doing something else. Yes, do you have a question? Yeah, I just got it if you can see me here. Hi. I can now. Hi. Hi. But I also, I think that's what it means to be in a relationship with others. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We didn't choose to be in relationship with the taskmasters in Egypt, but we do use our freedom of choice with whom we marry, with whom we're friends, with whom we dis which community we become affiliated with, where we work, how we choose to negotiate those relationships. Yes. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you. Oh, what a beautiful, beautiful point. Yes. So all all those areas of life where we express our bechirach of sheet, our freedom of choice, with it comes discipline, devotion, confining it to uh, within a certain vessel, so to speak, if I could use a Kabbalistic term. Ultimate freedom comes sandwiched with servitude. We become in, in service to something bigger. An idea, a relationship. This is when a human being finds in one's soul the complete mastery. However, this is the complete mastery of a truly free person who rules over the greatest of one's powers, the very power of freedom itself. And then he continues, concludes, it is no coincidence that the exclusive remembrance of the Beit HaMikdash and the entire Seder, the only time we actually mention the Beit HaMikdash, 
is in conformity with the approach of Hillel. It's no coincidence. Remember, the Haggadah was compiled after the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. Keep that in mind. Hillel is author of the adage of the famous teaching in Pirkei Avot, be of the disciples of Aharon, a lover of peace, or have shalom, uadef shalom, a pursuer of peace, a lover of humanity, who would bring them to Torah, umarkavana briyutal Torah. It is this approach, Hevra, it is this approach of the peacemaker, Hillel, that will bring about the restoration of our Beit HaMikdash. And I would say from that, Amen, King Yeratzon, it is this approach of you yourselves being with your journey, being the lover of yourself, the peacemaker of yourself, the lover of peace, the pursuer of peace within you. Be gentle. Be gentle with yourselves. It's the only way to bring yourselves to that place of redemption. For Rav Cook, this is why the only place in the Haggadah we've referenced a remembrance, where we actually reference a zecher, a remembrance to the Beit HaMikdash, is through Hillel. Only through compassion, only through chemla, ahava, l'cheinu l'chesed u'l'rachamim. We have that threefold expression in Hebrew, l'chein, with chein, with grace. We were not forcing it. L'chesed, kindness, u'l'rachamim, with chemla, with compassion. This is how we achieve our own redemption. This is how we will achieve redeeming the world from its terrible, mean-spirited, topsy-turvy, inside-out, crazy violence that's going on in the world right now. It cannot, it cannot be solved. It will not be redeemed through more violence. We cannot violently move through our journey of self-redemption with anger and, and meanness and cold-heartedness. We have to really love ourselves and love each other. That's the story. That's the real story of Yitzhiat Mitzrayim. Which is why Rav Cook so eloquently adds this piece that who else, who else would it be but Hillel? Who else but Hillel would we quote in the only time we mention anything about the Beit HaMikdash? May we see the third quickly in our days brought about through peace, establishing with justice, with mishpat, as Yeshiyahu says, with, with real mishpat, with real tzitkut, with real justice. Then we'll see that quietness that hashkata, that bitachon, that security, that bituach, that shalom, that peace. But it can only come from the positive energies. And then we move 
to a please. I just wanted to make sure I'm following you because I always wondered why and how standing up and opening the door for Hillel fit <laughs> in this whole, you know, very structured Seder. You have this and then that's this a, and then you do this. That's oh, about, I'm sorry, about Eliyahu. So where does Eliyahu fit? Or maybe you'll get there. Actually, I won't get there, but <laughs> this past Shabbat, I went to Rav Ross Hartman's, you know, the, the rabbis have a tradition on Shabbat Hagadol of giving a big talk. Their talk is Gadol. There's always a joke. Why is it called Shabbat HaGadol? Because the rabbis are allowed to give a very big drasha, drasha Gadola, right? So it's a, it's a tradition that that the rabbis do this. So um, Rav Raz, I was so honored to be able to be at his Pesach Shabbat, uh, Shabbat HaGadol drasha. And this is what he talked about. He talked about, um, I'm only going to say this in one minute or less. He talked about why after we eat, after the Berkat HaMazon, after we feel so redeemed, it's a, such a sweet time, we spend the rest of the evening singing, why do we open up the door and yell out to God, pour out your wrath to the nations? Like, what is that about? Okay, you'll have to read his talk when it's in print, and I'll make sure, I, I would love to get, actually, when I get it, to translate it and share it with all of you. But that's the point at which Eliyahu Navi comes to resolve the confusion if we should have a fifth cup or not. Because there were really five expressions of redemption, not four. But the fifth is the redemption after we're fully redeemed. So the rabbis were not clear whether we should have four cups of wine or five cups of wine. So why do we open the door and call that the Kos Eliyahu? Because again, there's that phrase in the Gemara, Teku, when he comes, it's not that he will have all the answers, it's that he will usher in the space of the ultimate redemption when there won't be these questions. So that's why we open up the door to usher in Eliyahu Navi, and at the same time, this pouring out your wrath. So it's a great question, great question. I would like to conclude with this amazing teaching from Rabbi Nachman, I learned uh, this is veering off course a little, but we can do that. A whole Talmud was written because of that, right? Mm-hmm. The, the first Mishnah in the very beginning of Talmud is when do we say the Shema? And then 20, 20 some odd volumes later, we have a whole Shas, right? So <clears throat> this is a teaching on Karech from Rabbi Nachman that I was blessed to learn many, many, many years ago. My gosh. And this year as I was relearning it, and I was blessed to reteach it at the conservative yeshiva. It, it, it astounded me how like, oh my gosh, I'm hearing Rav Cook in this whole teaching. They lived in different times. They lived in different places. But they were all coming from such depth. And we know that the depth, the omek, is where the truth is. They were all coming from really the same place. In terms of talking the language of the soul to the soul. So let's jump right into the transcending plurality sandwich. And this is in Rebbe Nachman's Haggadah. In this world, we experience plurality, the oneness of all things. The unity of God, as it is manifested in creation, though, is hidden. It's hidden. We find it difficult to comprehend how from the one comes the many. It is this element of multiplicity, um, 
Rivivut, or I think it's in Hebrew, um, Riviva. No, wait, um, Marbe. I forget the Hebrew word. Does anyone know the Hebrew word for plurality? I think it's Riviut. In this, it is in this element of multiplicity in creation which allows for the existence of evil, for the forces within and without the human which seek to conceal the Creator. It is the dissension within a person's heart, the dissidence between men's minds, which give rise to the actualization of that potential that we call evil. It's not the plurality. It's what we do with it. Matzah symbolizes the divine manifestation. Marah symbolizes divine concealment. Together, what do they symbolize together? The plurality in creation. So plurality can either, we can use through plurality, it's amazing, we can either see the divine creator manifested or the divine creator concealed. So he says, it is Hillel who symbolizes the transcending of contention between the human beings. Again, he's the peacemaker because he quoted the teaching for about, about Aharon. It is Hillel who realizes that all things are one, are one. In plurality, we have the harmony of many, many different voices, but all coming together, singing one piece, literally on the same page as a symphony. The schools of Hillel and Shammai, they disagreed, they disagreed upon a vast range of halachic matters and had a very divergent approach. They had very different approaches to Jewish life. Even so, between Hillel and Shammai, there was great accord and mutual respect between them. Moshe, if you look at the letters, Moshe. Now from Moshe comes the one Torah, Moshe is a Roshe Tevot. What is it a Roshe Tevot for? The Mem means Machloket, the Shin is Shammai, and the He is Hillel. So they both come, the word Moshe, who is the ultimate one, from Moshe you have the plurality of the Machloket, the differencing, the differences of opinions between uh, Shammai and Hillel, indicating that at their source, both opinions are one. It is the holy temple which symbolizes the great harmony in creation, the elevation of all things to their source. There, with the holy temple, we transcend plurality. We in our own lives begin to see that the bitterness, in fact, my gosh, from God's point of view, that was as kind as the revealed kindness. In other words, the concealment and the revelation. The hester, the state of concealment and the state of gilui come together as one. It's only when we can look back and realize, oh my gosh, without that bitterness, I would never be here celebrating. This is part of the integration, the integration of what outwardly looks as two opposites, really coming together as one. There we experience the unity of, the, of humanity, the oneness of adversity 
and contentment. I do bless you. I do bless you that you experience koreach in your lives. That you experience moments of where you can taste. It's bittersweet. You know that phrase, bittersweet? I think it was Hillel who said, who tasted, I think it was Hillel or maybe Rabbi Akiva, who tasted an apricot and said, I can no longer eat an apricot till the world to come. Because the, because the apricot is sweet and sour. And he said, this type of revealed unity really is a taste of the world to come. So I bless us all that in our Pesach Seder that we experience in a few nights, a few nights from now, <clears throat> that ultimately what we bring, what we bring to the table may be separate moments, concealment, manifestation, bitterness, and sweetness. That by the end of telling our story with each other and hearing each other's stories. May the unity of those moments of bitterness and the unity of those moments of sweetness, may those moments, may there be unity to those moments of concealment and those moments of manifestation. May they all become one to you in your experience. Thank you. Chag Sameach, Mamash, Chag Pesach Kasheva Sameach to all of you. You too, Yiska. Thank you for downloading this podcast. For more original Torah content, visit almad.pardes.org.